Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Kim Riddlebarger urging us to think biblically about the Antichrist. So I think it's, it's just mm. foolish to speculate about various politicians. You know, Ronald Reagan, six letters in his name. Yep. Gorbachev had the, had the splotch on his head, you know, the birthmark, that was back in the end of the forehead. I think that stuff is, is fascinating and wrong. So I think we need to uh, be very humble here in making predictions and guesses. Kim Riddlebarger, next. Retired pastor Dr. Kim Riddlebarger believes the doctrine of the Antichrist is one of the most interesting doctrines in Scripture, but unfortunately it's also been a subject given to tremendous speculation. A number of years ago, Kim attempted to shine the light of biblical truth on the subject of the Antichrist in his book, The Man of Sin, Uncovering the Truth About the Antichrist. Kim, tell us about the importance of grounding our understanding of the Antichrist in biblical teaching. It is an important theme throughout Scripture. One of the main subplots from Genesis to Revelation is Satan's attempt to uh, prevent the Messiah from coming and performing his saving work. So you have uh, the devil attacking the Messianic line in the Old Testament all the way to the cross. And then you have the scenes in Revelation where you have the war in heaven with the dragon and so on. So it's a major uh, subplot uh, running throughout Scripture. I wrote the book because there was so much confusion about the topic, precisely because people were assuming things to be true. Supposedly, the scripture taught this, the scripture taught that. And they launched from there into all kinds of wild and crazy speculation without regard for what the Bible actually says about Antichrist and what the Bible actually teaches about uh, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the beast, and so on. is a lot different than the common assumptions that people bring to the table. And I fully understand why people find the topic so uh, divisive and at times crazy that they just opt out. I tried to write a book that was clear and, and basically explain what the biblical doctrine of Antichrist was. And I think it's a fascinating topic when viewed from that perspective. I think it gets in way too much nuttiness when viewed apart from Scripture. Well, definitionally, Kim, who or what is the Antichrist? Well, here we have to be clear in our definitions, because I think a lot of people assume that the Antichrist is the main uh, villain in the book of Revelation. The fact is, Antichrist isn't even mentioned in the book of Revelation, which oftentimes comes as a surprise to people. Uh, John mentions it in his uh, epistles. He speaks of the last hour. We know it's the last hour, he says, because many Antichrists have already come. Uh, anybody who denies that Jesus is God in the flesh is Antichrist. Uh, you've heard he's coming. He's now already here. Um, so we assume that Antichrist is um, a end times figure, but the biblical data tells us he was a present reality already in the first century. And the congregations whom John is writing in Asia Minor, now Turkey, were already dealing with a particular heresy, which was the denial that Jesus had come in the flesh. So that's the narrow biblical use of the term Antichrist in John's epistles. That's the only place where you find the word. That said, there is a doctrine of Antichrist that is built upon a what B.B. Warfield called a composite photograph. If you take John's teaching about Antichrist in his epistles, 
If you take Paul's teaching about the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you take the beast and the false prophet of the book of Revelation and sort of impose those three images upon each other, you get what we would call the biblical doctrine of Antichrist, which is a broader uh, conception than the narrow use of the term in John's epistles. Well, thank you. And I, I believe uh, early on in your book, The Man of Sin, you, you describe those as three distinct strands of teaching about yeah. about the Antichrist in the New Testament. If I could go to the first one you mentioned there, John's epistles, that there are many Antichrist. Can you talk about that, what that means, the significance of that? Yeah, John's writing to uh, Christian exiles in Asia Minor, and they're being overwhelmed with probably a proto-Gnostic second or an early Gnostic group that claimed to have secret knowledge. And they were, uh, through that secret knowledge, through their teaching, they were denying that Jesus was God incarnate. So they may have been teaching he was a prophet. They may have been teaching he was fully God, only appeared to be human. Uh, what John's getting at is a denial of the incarnation, either Christ's divinity or his humanity. And so John is warning the congregation, look, this is the last hour. These guys are already here. Um, the fact that many antichrists have already come, he says in First uh, John 2.18, is, to his mind, proof that we're in the last period of human history. And it's characterized by these men who uh, deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. John calls it the spirit of antichrist, and he warns Christians in the first century that this is going to be a reality. It already has happened. They're already present. So the question then John's epistles raise is, does that sort of threat continue on until the time of the end? So that's one strand you'd have to consider. Do John's many antichrists teaching heretical things, does that kind of thread coalesce in an end times antichrist? And if all those three strands fit together, then yes, it would. And then uh, the book of Revelation, uh, you mentioned the beast, the false prophet, and I think also uh, in your book you mentioned the dragon as well, that those three are... Right. The book of Revelation has an interesting attempt on the part of Satan to mimic the Trinity. So you have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Um, the false prophet directs the worship of the state, uh, of, the, of the citizens of, to worship the state and or its leader. So it's a geopolitical sort of thing. The obvious picture we're given is that of Nero Caesar uh, in the, the 60s of the first century. And that Nero, is his fingerprints are all over the book of Revelation. His image is there everywhere. He is the figure that John is warning us about. Um, he's empowered by the dragon, who is Satan. He is the beast on the land who persecutes the saints. He wages war on them, appears to win. And the false prophet is the one who directs the worship of the people to the dragon. So that really reflects the Roman imperial cult, the worship of the emperor as a deity, uh, Christians being forced to uh, throw a little bit of incense into the incense burner outside the marketplace to go in and conduct their business. Um, we have an, uh, a letter from Pliny the uh, Younger uh, to Trajan the emperor from the last part of the first century talking about what do I do with these people because they get up at sunrise, they worship this Jesus figure, this Christ figure, and, you know, they're not loyal to me because they're not loyal to you, Emperor Trajan, because they're loyal to their King Jesus. What do we do? Should I kill them? And Trajan says, well, no, you don't hunt them down. But if they deny uh, that I am the legitimate Caesar, then you may put them to death. That's the kind of thing we're, we're seeing in, in the book of Revelation, the saints being persecuted for claiming that Jesus is Lord. As, as you well know, if you claim that Jesus is Lord, 
you were simultaneously saying that Caesar isn't. And Caesar's not happy about that. So that's the kind of thing going on in the book of Revelation, that the church will face a Nero-like figure at times throughout the course of its history. So, for example, I would point out that uh, Hitler and the, the rise of the Third Reich, which was it, at its very heart anti-Christian, is one of these attempts on the part of the dragon to raise up a, an antichrist figure only uh, it was at a time in history where the nations of the West were able to successfully uh, defeat Hitler and destroy the Third Reich. Uh, the end times Antichrist is going to uh, not face that sort of resistance, and he will appear to triumph until Christ comes back and crushes him. So um, the book of Revelation is a picture to us of what first century Christians faced, were actually facing at the time the letter was given, the vision was given, and then arises throughout the course of history at various times, in various places, Christians have to deal with this beast-like figure, but the beast is restrained until the time of the very end, when the beast is no longer restrained, Antichrist reaches its full power and full potential and wages war in the church, and there won't be prophecy conferences being held to say, hmm, could this be it? Because we will all know that this is it, and barring the Lord's return, it will be over. Well, that is interesting, and I want to get to that third strand in just a minute, but you raise a question, I think, uh, that everybody asks when this kind of discussion comes up. Will believers be able to recognize this individual, this Antichrist, and you're saying you believe so? Absolutely. There won't be a question. Mm. Um, I, I think the, the data, when you put it all together, points to the fact that this is a present threat. It comes in two forms. One is... John's Antichrist, which would be internal heresy in the church. There will always be heretics that threaten to lead God's people astray, destroy and weaken the church by their false teaching. There will always be an external threat when Satan can't worm his way in through heresy. He will use the power of the state, the police and economic power of, of whatever government is doing his bidding at that time. We will always see these kinds of things arise to the course of history. There will always be something like that on the earth in any given age. You can you can find an, an empire that's persecuting Christian people. But at the time of the end, uh, the restraint is lifted, and we have the the penultimate um, revelation of this person of evil, and it will be of such gravity and such universal scope that we're not going to be talking about. Uh, might this be the end? It will be the end, and we will know that if the Lord does not deliver us, it's all over. It will be that kind, of a, that kind of a grave situation. And the third of these three distinct strands of teaching about the Antichrist in the New Testament, uh, Kim, that you see is in Second Thessalonians, the man of sin? The man of sin is an interesting figure because Paul is writing to a congregation that is confused about his, uh, the Lord's return. Paul had only been there three weeks before he was driven out by the, the Renamov, as some scholars call it. And he had instructed the Christians there about the Lord's return. They were worried about death. What happens if somebody dies before Christ comes back? Do they miss out? Paul tells them no. He tells them that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then in the second epistle, there's another question circling around out there. And that is that somebody has said the day of the Lord has already come. And Paul writes to correct that by saying several things are going to happen before that can occur. One is the appearance of the man of sin. And when Paul mentions him, Paul ties him to the destruction he will face at the hands of Christ. So this is a seemingly an end times figure, an individual who is revealed unto destruction. So his appearance, when it occurs, is an end times final event. 
his revelation is a sign to us that that's the end. Uh, Paul also connects it to the time of great apostasy. And you know, every age has threats where people who profess faith in Christ seem to fall away in great numbers. We're witnessing some of that now with the decline of, of people professing faith in Christ and, and hitting the uh, other uh, box on the, on the surveys. Um, the kind of apostasy we're talking about isn't the sort of thing we're seeing now. We're talking about a massive apostasy along the lines of either profess faith in Christ or lose your head on the chopping block or the firing squad or whatever. And my assumption is that a great number of people are just not willing to die for their faith in Christ. And we're talking about uh, persecution, driving people from the church. But we could also be talking about a sort of heretical move in the church that seems to capture great numbers of, of folk uh, for a false teaching and a false leader. Um, and we've seen this, for example, with the Judaizers in Galatia. They were adept at tracking followers. Paul was shocked that so many had turned to them so quickly after he had just left the Galatian region. So we see this even in the pages of the New Testament. You know, John tells us that people went out from us because they were not of us. So we have the appearance of the man of sin, and we have an end times apostasy all at about the same time, and all those being signs to us that the end is at hand. Well, my guest today on His People is Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, pastor emeritus of Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim. He's also author of the book, The Man of Sin, Uncovering the Truth About the Antichrist, and that's what we're talking about, understanding the biblical teaching of the Antichrist. And Kim, before I ask you uh, about where this doctrine appears in history and how it appears, I'm wondering if you could also tell us what light the Old Testament sheds on the doctrine of the Antichrist. Well, a couple of ways the Old Testament's helpful to us is you have in the, the Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of the Gospel in, in you know, Genesis 3.15, the idea that someone is going to, to uh, crush the serpent, who is Satan, and his heel will be bruised in the process. So from the beginning of redemptive history, we are given a plot line that there's going to be some form of satanic opposition to the Gospel. And you watch this unfold in the pages of the Old Testament, these great empires arrive, you know, Babel and and then we have um, this whole series of empires that persecutes uh, Israel. We have the Assyrians that destroy the northern kingdom. The Babylonians come along and destroy the Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. We have the, the Persians after them. We have the Greeks after them, the Romans after them. So there's, there's an oppressive empire always with its heel on the people of God's neck in Israel. Once they're dispersed from the land in 586, they lose the the the, the mortgage deed, and Israel's back in the land under Gentile suzerainty, Gentile ownership, until Jesus defeats the forces of Satan on the cross, and the gospel goes to the end of the earth, and we don't have a, a, a holy land anymore. So it's it's hinted at throughout the Old Testament. The, the key passage, I would argue, is Daniel 9, 24-27, which is a passage that speaks of a coming one. Our dispensational friends assume that that's the uh, seven-year tribulation period when Antichrist appears. I think that's a messianic prophecy that's already fulfilled. That's another topic for another time. So the Old Testament helps us by saying there are going to be geopolitical realities opposing the kingdom of God. These geopolitical realities do the work of of the devil. They seem to be the default setting. If the church doesn't fall from within, Satan will put some sort of external pressure on the people of God. And it takes the the form of police, military power, and economic uh, 
uh, sanctioned and so on. So God's people can't buy or sell. They're um, left impoverished and, and so on. So, um, yeah, this is a theme that comes to full flower when Jesus ascends into heaven. We enter the last days and he watched them from the time of Christ's ascension onward, various times and places where the Roman Empire, uh, you can just go down the list of, of empires that arise and persecute the people of God. And yet somehow the gospel seems to succeed even to a greater extent when the people of God are being persecuted. So uh, the great paradox here is the age of the Great Tribulation, which is the, the whole time between Christ's first coming and his second, is also the period of the Great Commission. And the two things run parallel. So as the church is persecuted, the gospel spreads. And that seems to be the pattern for this, this present age until Christ returns again. And you made reference, I think, Kim, to part of Revelation chapter 13, where the people will be unable to buy or sell uh, yes. believers. And it, it sounds like this is a worldwide phenomena. It would have to be, right? It would have to be. I think it's very problematic to take a localized phenomena and universalize it. I think in this case it will be. Uh, of course, that raises the question, well, well, what form will it take? Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody does. I'm, I think the dispensationalists are, are wrong about the details. I think they're right to be suspicious of, of certain forms of technology that make it easier to, to figure out who's who in the zoo and <laughs> conduct their business and so on. I think, I think we all should be a little nervous about AI and increasing government power control, those kinds of things. But um, your hardest boss, the famous Dutch Reformed theologian, uh, I think warns all of us when he says the best predictor of these things, the best way to, to see how these things are fulfilled uh, is their final fulfillment. You know, well, when it happens, we're going to know. And until then, we need to be humble and circumspect and not make grandiose predictions about things that the Scripture doesn't tell us specifically. We do know that before Christ returns, there will be this appearance of the man of sin. We do know there will be a great apostasy. And when that occurs, it is Paul connects it directly to Christ's second advent. He will come to destroy these things. Uh, there is a, there's a, a tsunami on the horizon called the wrath of God. And nobody wants to talk about it, but it's coming. And Paul's great hope for the Thessalonians is when Christ returns, you're delivered from that wrath of God. So our this is why it's the blessed hope. We look forward to not only being delivered from sin and its guilt and its power, but also from the presence of the ungodly. And we live at a time, as Jesus himself told us it would be, the days of Noah. We live in a very similar period. What have been some of the various views of the Antichrist uh, that have emerged in history, whether uh, in early church history with the church fathers or the Reformation, or even uh, more recently? Uh, there, there have obviously been a number of different views of the Antichrist, but perhaps they also have certain things in common as well. Can you possibly do that, juxtapose where they're different, but maybe also what they share in common? Yeah, the earliest speculation about Antichrist is found in some of the Church Fathers, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, and others. They're looking for a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and an apostate Jew to fulfill that role of Antichrist. And, of course, over time, you have the, the um, Crusades and so on. And you have this kind of struggle, at least in Western civilization, with Jerusalem becoming the center, because that's not because it's important, but because it seems to be the place where Christ will return 
We've got the Zechariah 14 passage. Islamic eschatology also held that uh, Jerusalem was the center. The Antichrist would appear right outside the Eastern Gate and so on. So the focus of the church has largely been upon Jerusalem as the center of things. When the Reformation comes, I'm going to skip a bunch because the details are, are kind of incidental here. By the time of the Reformation, the concern is the fact that the Roman church has moved away from the gospel and is enforcing uh, ceremonies and biblical teaching upon the people of God that essentially uh, argue that something very similar to the Judaizers that were saved by faith plus good works by some sort of infusion of grace from the church sacraments and so on. The reformers saw the papacy as antichrist. Luther and Calvin were very clear that the papacy, not necessarily a specific pope, but the office of papacy itself was in fact antichristic. Westminster Confession of Faith, the Pope is that true Antichrist, the very Antichrist, because of his insistence upon being the vicar of Christ on earth. Um, when Christ ascends into heaven, you know, the, the church struggles to explain, well, how do we relate to a Savior who's not physically present, but is in heaven? And Rome says, well, it's easy. We've got his vicar on earth. We have his church, which is his body. We have his sacraments in which uh, the bread and wine become his body and blood. So the reformers saw in that an antichristic tendency. Also remember at the time, Rome controlled the biggest empires, the Holy Roman Empire, including France and Spain and Italy, and was able to militarily uh, force the reformers, at least in Holland anyway, in, into times of great persecution and, and terror. There you know, as many as 30,000 reformed Christians killed in the Low Countries because of uh, the papacy directing the armies of the, of the Holy Roman Empire to wage war on the saints. So there are signs and seals of it, uh, there are signs and appearances of it during the Reformation era. However, the gospel triumphs and spreads all over Europe into the New World and so on, so it became pretty clear that the papacy may have had antichristic tendencies, but the papacy really isn't antichrists as we find in the three forms, the three composite images. So of late, once Israel's back in the land again, speculation starts to circle back around, that's got to be something, that place has to have something to do with the return of Antichrist. And so the dispensation site to the temple, um, a rebuilt temple is the place where Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel and then betrays him and so on. Um, I don't think there's anything in Scripture that points in that direction. I think, as you mentioned in your question, Scripture points us in the direction of a universal outbreak of evil, something along the lines of Hitler's Third Reich, something along the lines of the Neronian persecution of the church, something we've seen before in history that was stopped, only this time it won't be. So I think it's it's just mm. foolish to speculate about various politicians. You know, Ronald Reagan, six letters in his name, yeah. Gorbachev had the, had the splotch on his head, you know, the birthmark, that was back in the end of the forehead. I, I think that stuff is, is fascinating and wrong. So... I think we need to uh, be very humble here in making predictions and guesses. Do I remember correctly, Kim, that, that in your book you said uh, the Antichrist will be something of a false messiah? Yes. The very term Antichrist tells us that you know, this is going to be someone who is a satanic imitator of the incarnate Christ. So we touched on it briefly in the book of Revelation. You know, you've got this false trinity present, and the Antichrist, uh, when he comes mimics the second coming of Christ. Um, he appears to 
die and ride. There's something with this whole Nero myth. Remember Nero, who was, was uh, committed suicide, but there was a giant myth throughout the Roman Empire for as long as 100 years that Nero was going to return and wreak havoc on his enemies. So you've got that that motif that as Christ died and was raised, so too Antichrist will mimic that saving work of Christ, and the Antichrist figure at the end will be a false Messiah, and in many ways mimic the work of the Holy Trinity. Well, I'm talking with Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, and his book is Understanding the Biblical Teaching of the Antichrist. And as we discuss this, uh, Kim, and it suddenly brings the reality that uh, this has been a types of Antichrist have been through history, back to biblical times, as you said, uh, the teaching you see in Scripture is that it will culminate in an individual prior to the return of Christ. What is the encouragement or the hope for believers as we discuss this kind of a thing where, as you said, we we will, there's no point in speculating about who it is, but when that occurs, and when that person emerges, you believe it'll be very clear to all Christians who it is. What, what is the hope in all of this, or, or the encouragement to not get maybe too swept up <laughs> in all of it? Well, remember, the Antichrist, whatever form he takes, is tied to Christ's second advent. And for the Christian, everyone longs to be that generation still alive when the Lord returns, we may never taste the sting of death. And as Paul tells the Thessalonians, look, even if you die, you will return with Christ and the heavenly host. When Christ returns, the wrath of God will be poured out upon the entire world. This is judgment day. This is the great day of resurrection. This is the day of ushering in a new heaven, new earth. So we look up because our redemption draws near. And the great apostasy, should we witness it? The rise, the rise of an antichrist, should we witness it? Are all harbingers of something so glorious, we can't even begin to conceive of how wonderful it will be when instantaneously we are transformed from sinful flesh into bodies like Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 and reflect the same resurrected glorified body as our Lord. So this is a, a hopeful thing. This is not something to be frightened of. It, it's this, The analogy would be death. None of us want to die. All of us are afraid of dying, but a Christian is really not afraid of death. I think that's a helpful analogy here. That I don't want to die. I don't want to be sick. I don't have tubes and all of that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I'm looking forward to seeing my Savior. So it, it has that kind of a, of a blessing curse thing attached to it, that this is the great day of Christ. This is the day when we will see our Lord face to face. This is the day when this every trace and hint of sin will be removed. This is a day when we see our resurrected bodies and participate in the inheritance that has been promised to us. So as Paul says, it is the blessed hope. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, retired pastor Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, author of The Man of Sin, Uncovering the Truth About the Antichrist. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at the same time for another edition of His People. <laughs>